Louisville, Illinois, one summer, summer afternoon, a lady in a long black dress looked directly at me and pronounced a curse on me. Why are you laughing about that? It's kind of freaky. Kind of thought, wow, that doesn't happen every day. She just cursed me and she kept walking. It wasn't the first time I had been cursed, but it was a little disconcerting. Then I remembered, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And according to God's word, I am blessed by God with an irreversible blessing in his son, Jesus Christ the Lord. Where does the Bible say that, you say? I say, you guessed, Ephesians. How did you know that? Have you ever had someone curse you? Hope that didn't happen today. You realize we often repeat curses on ourselves. Once I was stung on the toe by a yellow jacket. It's a story I love to tell. Ask me, I'll be happy to tell you. And it hurt for hours. I'm not kidding. Sometimes people close to us will curse us unintentionally. And even an unintentional curse can sting for years. Do you ever feel like you live under a curse? Some people are that way. They'll tell you that. I just feel like I'm cursed. Or they'll say it in milder ways like, things just don't go right for me. Or, or maybe they wouldn't say it that way. They would say, you tell me I'm blessed, but it's hard for me to believe that. I think a lot of people are there. You say I'm blessed, but sometimes I wonder, and I've even had people graciously, not in a mean way, but write to me after I've preached and talked about the blessing of the Lord, and, and they will say, you know, from their hearts, how can you say I'm blessed? And they'll say, this is what happened to me. That is what happened to me. Feels like their life is full of curses. And so sometimes we feel like we're living under a curse. Walk around with a cloud of condemnation over our head. But this letter that we're about to study, this beautiful letter by Paul through the Holy Spirit to the Ephesians is going to tell us how we are and can be blessed forever in Christ. The letter to the Ephesians is going to show you who you are in Christ. First three ch chapters will teach you that. And what he expects of you or what you're capable of in Christ versus chapters, the last three, four through six. You've heard this before. Most people notice that if you read Ephesians, it can be divided, you know, evenly, almost in half. The first part being doctrine and the second part being duty. You may have heard that before. The first part, our riches. The second part, our responsibilities. Watchman Nee, the great Chinese uh, teacher, evangelist, wrote a little famous book called Sit, Walk, stand on Ephesians, meaning the first three chapters are sit, our position in Christ where we're seated in the heavenlies and walk, how we should behave and how we can behave in the next two chapters. And then obviously Ephesians chapter six is about spiritual warfare, how we stand. And so there are a lot of different ways to look at Ephesians and we'll explore some of those. But the world that we're living in Let's be honest about it. Un, not unlike first century Ephesus, is dark and dangerous and sometimes confusing place, and that can be crushing. It's filled with temptations like deadly landmines 
everywhere. But there is a way to know what God is doing in the world, and there is a way to find our place in it. And the way, in a short, it's read your Bible, the Word of God, and compare Scripture with Scripture so that you thoroughly understand it. That's what we're all about here. Now, that's a powerful way to understand what God is doing in the world and where we fit into what God is doing in the world. And people that know what God is doing in the world and know where they fit, and especially people that realize that what God is doing in the world is actually good, that he has a good grace and peace plan for the world, those people, I think they would tend to, maybe they would tend to be out ahead of others a bit, wouldn't you say? Those people, um, that would be worthwhile. And so let's get right into it. Uh, Ephesians 1, 1 and 2 says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's Ephesians chapter 1. Verses 1 and 2. Listen to it again. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you, peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you're a good student, you should be asking right now at least three questions, or four, right? You should be thinking, so who is Paul? Who is Paul? This is what you do Bible study. Paul, who is that? Who's Paul? You should be asking, and who are the Ephesians? Who are they? What is that? You should be asking, who? Take your shoes off of your feet, right? Who is the Lord Jesus Christ? You should be thinking about that again. And why does he start the letter praying for grace and peace? That's Really, all we're going to do is answer those four questions today by comparing Scripture with Scripture. Meet Paul. Meet Paul. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. He's an apostle. He's an apostle of Christ Jesus. He's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now, sometimes he's called Saul, and sometimes Paul. Among Hebrews, Saul. Among Gentiles, Paul. But Saul, in Acts uh, 13, says, but Saul, who's also called Paul, was filled with the Holy Spirit. The fullest bio of uh, Paul is probably in uh, Philippians and chapter 3, verses 4 and 6. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, also if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now we know a little more about Paul. He's a Pharisee in a strict conservative branch of Judaism. All this is really important, so track with me. According to the strictest party of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee, he says in Acts 26. And by the way, I'll tell you this, lots of stuff here today. Um, I'm going to skip over some of it for, because, you know, we don't want to burn the roast, but um, there are notes online that are, that are kind of thorough. So if you look at BethelJackson.org and you click on Sunday Live, you have a live feed of the service, and, you, and then you have note, extensive notes beneath that in case you, I say something here and you go, I'd like to go back and find that passage. 
Paul was a Pharisee, a strict conservative branch of Judaism. Paul was zealous for Judaism, and he persecuted Christians. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God and violently tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own among my people, so I was extremely zealous for the tradition of my fathers, he said in Galatians 1, 13 and 14. He was set apart by God before he was born to be a Christian and to be an apostle. More about that in a moment, but Galatians 1.15 again, but when he who had set me apart before I was born called me by his grace. It's super important to understand Paul being an apostle wasn't a decision that he made alone or that others made for him. God picked him out for this. And this is really important. And so that's a dramatic and miraculous story. It's told repeatedly in the New Testament, so it must be important. I think in the book of Acts, there, there, there's, there are three incidents of, of the conversion of, of Paul. I journeyed, this one is in Acts 26, 12 through 18. I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest at midday, O king. I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul, who thinks he's persecuting people who are against God, hears a voice from God saying, why are you persecuting me? Hey, Paul, you're on a wrong team. Imagine it. It's hard for you to kick against the goads, God says to Paul on the road to Damascus. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise, stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things which you have now seen in me and those in which I will appear in you, delivering you from your people, from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you to open their eyes, sending this Jewish guy to the Gentiles, listen, to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, and that they may receive forgiveness and sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Or he could have said, I'm doing this so that years from now, a group of Gentiles can sit in a Christian church in Jackson, Michigan, having turned from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, receiving forgiveness and a place among those who are sanctified. Just wanted to give you an amen spot. Paul wrote at least 13 books in the New Testament. Paul took three missionary journeys. Paul suffered for his faithfulness to God. Paul, according to Christian history, was executed. And he wrote this letter, which has been a tool of transformation for millions. And if you lean into it, it will be a blessing to you. It's a path to living forever under the blessing of God in Christ Jesus. Let me just make a couple applications before we go on. Always remember that all of God's friends were once his enemies. Paul wrote to the Corinthians that God has given to each of us a ministry of reconciliation, reconciling enemies to God. So don't count the enemies out. They're going to make some of God's best friends someday. And only God knows what comes of a ministry of reconciliation. Your influence may spread throughout the earth and may last forever. Now think about our congregation this week a little bit. Just a few of our kids that have were, were born and grew up here, and they're around, literally around the world serving the Lord, you know. And some of them are not yet. Some of them not yet, but God can do anything. Some of them are like Paul, and they need to see the light. Amen? 
And so that's why we gather and we pray. An apostle, what is an apostle? What is an apostle of Christ Jesus? We talk about who is Paul. Let's talk about what is an apostle? An apostle is one sent by Jesus with the authority of Jesus who's a witness of the resurrection. Let me show you that in Scripture. Mark 3, 13 to 15, and he went up to the mountain and called to him those he desired. They came to him and he appointed the 12 whom he also named apostles so they might be with him and, they, and he might send them to preach and have authority to cast out demons. That would be good, clean fun, wouldn't it? An apostle is a witness of the resurrection. One of them, this, uh, one of the men who have accompanied us during all that time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up, one of these men must be, become with us a witness to the resurrection, they said in the book of Acts as they were thinking about how are they going to replace Judas. They said, we need another apostle, apostle, you know, a sent one that's going to be a witness of the resurrection. Going around, telling people about Jesus who died and rose again is a really big deal. It still is. Being a witness of a resurrection is a really big deal. These are uniquely, they saw Jesus resurrected physically. To be an apostle in that sense is a person who sent and commissioned by the risen Christ who saw Jesus alive. There's a special office there in the New Testament. The ministry and apostleship, it's called in Acts 1, 21 through 26. So Paul was chosen, he was called, he was appointed by God. So it says, again, in Galatians uh, 1, 15 to 17, Paul, an apostle, not from men or through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. In Galatians 1, 1, but when he who had set me apart before I was born called me by his grace, he was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone and I did not go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. I went away to Arabia and I returned to Damascus. You get what he's saying? I didn't get my apostleship because I just, from my mother or because I wanted to. I didn't get my apostleship from the other apostles. They affirmed him. He got his apostleship from God. It's called by God. So this is critical for you and I today because Paul's writings are a chunk of the New Testament, and they are under attack. But we can't take parts of the Bible and leave the Paul parts out. He was sent by God. He was commissioned by God. He was an apostle. He was an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. You say, wait a minute. He was, yes, he was. He said he was. It was in a unique way. Out of due time, he said. This is in 1 Corinthians 15. He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And then last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. Get it? I am the least of the apostles. I'm unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted God. But he said, but I did see him alive. So he's talking about his apostolic qualification there. Again, 1 Corinthians 9, 1 and 2, he saw the living Christ. Am I not free, he says, in defending his apostleship? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? So when we say apostle, we're talking about someone who's been specifically commissioned by Jesus, that has Jesus' authority, and, and also, he's seen the risen Christ. He doesn't put a time limit on who could 
be, be an apostle, you see, in that, in that unique regard. So again, he saw the living Christ. He was commissioned by the Lord. Then he was affirmed and he was recognized by the other apostles. Afterward, he was what they called given the right hand of fellowship. Sometimes we say to members when they come into the church, we're going to give you the right hand of fellowship. And, that, and that's good. That's fine. Um, but in the Bible, it was the right hand of fellowship. Was, this was the incidence in which the right hand of fellowship is mentioned. And it's specifically the other apostles recognizing that Paul, that God made Paul an apostle. And so it says in Galatians 2, 6 through 9, and from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to be to the circumcised, worked through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, this is James, Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. This is important because it's not saying that the apostles make other apostles. It's saying the apostles recognize him to be an apostle. So Paul had full apostolic authority, nor did anyone seek glory from people. It says in 1 Thessalonians 2, 6, and 7, Paul writes, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. He says, I didn't come in like an apostle, but I was. So those who are genuinely from the Lord, they acknowledge that the writings of Paul are from God. It's important. If anyone thinks, this is 1 Corinthians 14, 37, 38, if anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge the things I'm writing to you are the command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So don't say, like some popularly will say, things like, you know, I really love the teaching of Jesus, but I don't know about Paul. Like, well, Jesus knew about Paul. Paul's writings are scripture. This is what it says in 2 Peter. Peter's writing about Paul's writing and says, Our beloved brother Paul, who also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters, he speaks in them these matters that some of them are hard to understand. It's kind of humorous. Which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. Watch for people who twist Paul's words. Those are unstable. They've, they're disapproved. And this is happening all the time among people carrying a Christian card and saying, this is not what Paul meant, this is what Paul meant. They don't like what he said, so they're going to change it. Isn't that interesting? And, and, and Peter said, they twist these things to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So Peter's recognizing that Paul's writing his Bible. So the apostles are the foundation of the church, so when you're no longer strangers and aliens, this is Ephesians 2, 19 and 20, we're no longer strangers or aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So the, the foundation of the church, the apostles and prophets and the, and the apostolic message and the apostolic authority. What did Paul mean when he said, an apostle according to the will of God? Well, you should know that by now, right? Because it meant that God called him he didn't get sent by his family. He didn't appoint himself. Even the apostles didn't appoint him, but he's sent by God. That's important. 
What, what did Paul mean by that? That's what he meant. And again, in application, God has spoken through his apostles and prophets. Wise people listen to them. Wise people obey them. If you're a smart kid, you will get your Bible and you will read what Paul said. It is the word of God. You will not dismiss what Paul said. You will not change what Paul said. You will receive what Paul said. If all the world disagrees, Paul is right and the world is wrong because God has spoken. And so that's important. Don't discount. I kind of made that point. Nonetheless, here's God transforming Paul to the gospel. If he can transform a guy like Paul, he could transform you and all the hard cases you know. He was a violent advocate of false religion, demonically driven. And God turned him into an apostle of the one true creator God. He was zealous. He was dangerous. He was violent. He was a fanatic. He was eager to injure and kill. But he became a devout, sacrificial Christian. And he laid down his life for the cause of Christ. That's amazing. Now, Meet Paul, who was an apostle. Second, meet the faithful saints of Ephesus. Meet the faithful saints of Ephesus. I'll tell you something humor I'm thinking, right, humorous right now. I'm thinking, we broke down our teaching. We have a schedule for our teaching. So we're supposed to teach Ephesians in 15 weeks. Um, I'm looking at the clock, and I'm thinking, I can't talk faster, because if I do, you can't tell what I'm saying. So you know what we're going to have to do here? You're going to have to study between Sundays. Okay, all right. So let's talk about, let's talk a little bit about the, um, the, the Ephesians. Who were they? We know a little bit more now about who Paul is and what is an apostle, but what about the Ephesians? So we have Paul who had this miraculous encounter with Jesus. This group, this Christian group are called saints who are in Ephesus and faithful. This is interesting. So you're going to want to ask who are the Ephesians and why were they called saints and why were they called faithful? And what we would want to do, if we kind of had the time, is we probably want to take our Bibles and we probably want to turn to Acts. And we probably want to look at Acts chapter 18. And, when, and then when we did that, we would find some really fascinating things because you kind of have the story of the beginning of the church in Ephesus. And it really is a colorful story. You know, so Paul's involved. Uh, some of the early pioneers were Aquila and Priscilla, one of the most interesting couples in the Bible. Both of them were very capable in teaching the Bible. There was this, uh, uh, there was this man named Apollos from Alexandria in Egypt who had incomplete knowledge, but he was brilliant in the Old Testament. And he knew about John the Baptist, but he didn't know the full story of Jesus yet. And he's a factor in preaching the truth that he knew in Ephesians. And Priscilla and Aquila hear him, and they correct him. And he takes the correction, and he becomes a mighty and eloquent, spirit-filled uh, man being used to the Lord in Ephesus. Paul goes there for a brief time. If you read this in Acts 18 and 19, he sails from Corinth across the Aegean into Ephesus. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He doesn't have much time. He's tired. He spends a little time speaking in the synagogue, it says, and then he leaves them behind. He goes then to Chensharia and then up to Antioch, and he checks in, but he comes the back way back, and by the time he gets back, and uh, Aquila and Priscilla and others have been working, and they have a little cluster of of interested parties that aren't yet Christians, and the Bible says there are 12 of them. 
And then, they, and then he takes them further, and they're converted, and they get baptized. And now Apollos is among them, and Aquila and Priscilla. And then there's some colorful, cool, interesting stuff, like they have power over demons. And there's this, there, there's this high priest, Sceva, who has seven sons who are making money casting out demons. And Paul is casting out demons. And so the seven sons of Sceva, this is one of the fun stories of the Bible, the seven sons of Sceva decide maybe that would be a, that would, they want to add that to their game. So they're going to cast out demons in the name of Paul and of Jesus. And there's this guy that's demon possessed. So they go up to him and they say, in the name of Paul and Jesus, and the demons talk back and go, this is one of the funny parts of the Bible. Paul, we know, Jesus, we know, but we don't know who you are. And then they, he, the demons jump on him and rip off their clothes. So it's a great story. Um, and when you read that, it's like, oh, wow, a dramatic story. And no kidding. Then the word of the Lord spreads and everybody hears about it. Well, you got this kind of stuff that's going on. I kind of did the fly over that. And then, of course, there's the temple of Artemis or Diana on the hillside that, that, that overshadows the town. And that's a big moneymaker. There's Demetrius, the silversmith he's making. People are, it's a large industry. It's kind of like making money on selling idols. And then the gospel starts to take hold so much. It starts with a little group of 12 that were slow to come to believe. And then it be, God begins to the part I left out right after the sons of Sceva. The Christians who were Christian was still had demonic practices, thought maybe we should be messing with demonic practices. So they brought all their stuff and they burned it publicly. And it's worth lots and lots of money. And this really got a lot of pushback. And Demetrius and his crew, they didn't like that because it was going to cut into their business. Now there was persecution and Paul has to actually leave town. The last we see with Paul... And the Ephesians is a tender scene in Acts chapter 20, where Paul calls for the elders of the Ephesian church, about 30 miles away from Ephesus in Miletus. And Paul's going to go and probably eventually die. And he has a gorgeous scene with the elders. And he had, had taught in the synagogue as long as he could. Then he got pushed out of the synagogue, and he taught for a long time in the school of Tyrannus. So he knew a lot of people there in Ephesus. And what happened is those that were converted in Ephesus went along the, the Meander and the Lycos River Valley and planted other Jesus groups out of that. And so this letter has come to, not only to the church of Ephesus, but most scholars believe it's a circular letter that's also distributed to these other Jesus groups that were touched by the Apostle Paul and those early pioneers. And they're under a lot of pressure and they live in the shadow of great danger and paganism a very a looming shadow of danger. And so they're clinging to this letter from this precious man who literally peril, you know, served them at the peril of his own life, told them all the counsel of God. When he parted, they were weeping, but they loved Jesus most of all. And so that's a little bit of the backstory, and there's so much more that we could talk about there. But this is, this is when we say these are the Ephesians that's what we're talking about. So a movement has begun now. And if you've been touched by the story of Christ and you've really met him, he's going to put his finger on things in your life that need to not be in your life anymore. And you aren't going to sell them. You're going to pile them up and burn them. You don't want anybody else to have them. A lady in our church one day, and she was having trouble. Her name was Pat, sweet lady. A little, little store in the corner. And I stopped in every once in a while to get a treat. Witness to Pat. She and her husband came to our church and her their son came to our church, and he got saved, married a Christian girl in our church. She was having troubles. She couldn't figure out why. I was standing with her in the corner one time, and she says, you know, you were preaching Sunday, and you said something that made me wonder. I read these books, and I'm not really sure they're good. 
I go, well, what kind of books are there? She goes, well, they're, well, I don't know, romances, but some of them are just kind of like mysteries, and some of them are a little dark, but they're entertaining. I go, where do you have them? She goes, right here. And I go, can I see them? And I, <laughs> I went around the corner, and she had a big shelf full of books that were not good. I said, do you have a burn barrel? And she goes, why? I go, because if I were you, I'd just take those out and burn them. Well, Pat at first just thought I was crazy, but the Lord moved upon her heart to burn those books up. She found a new freedom in her life once she really let go of the things that were questionable in her life. That's what happened in Ephesus. So these people had endeared themselves to Paul and Paul to them, and most of all, they were in Christ, and Christ had worked miraculously in them, and, and there was the breaking of the stronghold of darkness over them. How do we know the kinds of things that are our strongholds that Jesus would happily overcome and bless us on our behalf if we can? So there's so much more. we we, we got to hurry on. What does Paul mean by saint? Why did he call the Ephesians saints? Now, you know this, that in some churches, they have a sainthood, which means a person is heroic, a special heroic Christian who's maybe even had a miracle, and they're recognized by the church in that sense as a saint. Now, that's, that's a historic designation that some churches use. This is not what Paul's talking about, however, in the Bible. In the Bible, when it says saint, it's the rank and file believer. And so, since the rank and file believer is told to pursue holiness— to be set apart unto God's moral purity and his holiness, he or she is called a saint because in the eyes of God, he's made holy immediately, and in his sanctification, he's growing toward holiness. So the designation of the Bible is for every rank-and-file believer is a saint. Now, we all like Christian biography. That's why that hagios is the Greek word you know, for saint. Hagiography is the word for a biography of someone who's a saint, and those are worthwhile. So when you're, when you're reading biographies of great Christians, outstanding Christians, those are really worthwhile. I believe in that. Matter of fact, much of, dozens of my own personal biographies I put over here in what you call the church library, and you can borrow them anytime you want to because something powerful about outstanding Christians. But listen, in the Bible, what we have here is God speaking to the rank and file Christian, the, the common man whose name probably isn't going to be read about by others, and maybe he or she is not outstanding but faithful, a saint and faithful. Your common, faithful, holy one pursuing holiness. And that's why they're called saints and faithful. And the scriptures are clear. If you look into the notes online, you can see a number of places where saint is used in that way. It's incontrovertibly true that the main way that the Bible, the only way the Bible uses saint is on just the, another name for a Christian. As a matter of fact, in Ephesus, the Christians are never called Christians. They're called saints and other names. And so this is one of the things that they're called. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4 says he gave the apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers to equip the saints. That doesn't mean just to equip, you know, the people that were dead that did a good job, but the average person. You see what I'm saying? Um, and so it says, blessed be the God and Father, Ephesians 1, 3, and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, and even as he chose us in him. And that's the idea behind the saint, is that they're, set, they're chosen, set apart, and pursuing holiness. That's why it says in Ephesians 5, and using marriage as a picture of the church, and it says, 
that the, per, that the, that the, the bride of Christ, the believer, is, is splendor without spot, without wrinkle, without any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. This is our ambition. And not only is it our ambition, and of course we should feel ashamed if we're not, right? But it's our possibility in Christ. You can pursue holiness. Now, so we've met Paul, and we've talked about why he's an apostle, and we met the Ephesians, and we talked about why they're saints and why they're faithful. Let's meet the Lord Jesus Christ. Why does Paul so often refer to the Lord as the Lord Jesus Christ? Let's not skip over that quickly. He's established a movement in Ephesus through a small group of believers, and he can establish a movement in us. I want to explain the names of Jesus. Paul, an apostle of, notice it says, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Later on, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In these two little short verses, everything is attached to the Lord Jesus Christ. I heard a Dallas Seminary professor one time stop in teaching Pauline epistles and say, I love it that Paul often used the full name, the Lord Jesus Christ. These have been made into titles, but they're descriptive of, of who he is. Christ is a reference to anointed one, meaning a reference to Messiah. When we use the term Christ, what we're talking about, the Christ, this is a title, though it's come to, to, to be used as a personal name, it, it means anointed one, kingly one. Prophets, priests, and kings were anointed in the Old Testament, and Jesus is prophet and priest and king. It, it, this is the difference between having a talk, gathering a group of people and having a, a, an inspiring talk, and Christian preaching. It's the, the, ha, does Jesus have a central place? Are pe people being pressed to the speaker? Then it's not a Christian meeting. Are people being pressed to an ethic? Then it's not a Christian meeting. Are people being pressed to Christ? Then it's a Christian meeting. And people in, uh, in Ephesus were not essentially Paul followers. The people in Ephesus were not a Paulist follower. Later on, Corinth had a little problem with that. It's like, don't say that. They were following Jesus. This is important. This is important. Uh, the name Jesus. So Christ means Messiah or anointed one. Jesus means Savior. In the Old Testament, Joshua, Yeshua, Joshua, same word Hebrew and Jesus Aramaic. He shall bear a son, Matthew 121, and you'll call his name Jesus because he will deliver, he will save his people from their sins. He's riding in on a white horse like Braveheart to deliver us. I, you've, you've heard me say that before because that's one of my favorites right there. Jesus, in this, when we say Savior, we're thinking the, the cavalry is coming and who is that on the white horse in front of everyone? That's our Savior. No one can overcome him. No one can defeat him. He, in the end and, and forever, he wins. And, and we're in him, Christ, Jesus, our Lord, Kures. It means he's our master. We willingly yield to him. We follow him. When you get saved, you're saved by grace through faith alone. Ephesians says that. It's by free grace. But the trick is, the twist is this. Once we're saved, we recognize he is our Lord and master. So we don't say, I'm saved so I can do whatever I want. We say, I'm saved so I can do whatever he wants. We're signing up for him to be our what? Lord. So it's Jesus Christ, the Lord. It's Jesus Christ, your Lord. Do you recognize he's the Messiah? Do you recognize that he's the Savior? 
Do you recognize that he's the master? Christ Jesus occurs 11 times in Ephesians, and all but one of them, Christ Jesus goes with our Lord. Paul's using a full name. Jesus is only used once, alone, probably because it was a common name in the time and it wouldn't have, it would have applied to a lot of other people too. It's not wrong to say Jesus. It's just especially wonderful to say Jesus Christ, our Lord, or the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is used six times in six chapters of Ephesians. And Jesus Christ never occurs without Lord, except in one, five, where it's implied. Lord, 15 times without Jesus or Christ. Christ, 25 times. Paul very reverently used the full name and description of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he never used Jesus alone. Jesus was a common name in the world of Paul. So it was used alone as frequently as we use it today. So for dignity and for distinction, he uses the full name of Jesus. May Jesus' name ever be honored in this place and among these people. We are in Christ Jesus our Lord. And what about this thing, grace and peace? Can we go into overtime? Okay. What, what about grace and peace? God has plans for you that are good. That's what that's about. Hey, Ephesus saints and those that are reading over their shoulder, God says to you, grace and peace. In a world that takes, 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 God, grace gives. In a world that fights, 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 God says, let's have eternal and perfect peace. So when you're thinking, oh, here comes God and he's powerful, shall I yield to him? Well, yes, if you want grace and peace, it might be a good idea because it's the only way. People are in Christ. Saints and faithful are, have grace and peace. What's, Ephesians 1 through 3 is kind of the question, answers the question, what is God doing in the world? He's bringing heaven to earth, 110, 2.10, 3.10. Study those verses. What's God doing in the world? He's bringing heaven to earth. Okay, chapter 4, 5, and 6 are, how does he want me to be involved? And you'll see, he's going to give you a gift in chapter 4, and there's more. He's going to have you fighting in chapter 6. But, but we'll talk about those later. But what you have in Ephesians is, 1, 2, 3 is, what is God doing in the world? Four, five, six, how can I be involved? And then before he says any of that, he goes, I just want you to know this is going to be grace and this is going to be peace. I want to, I'm God and I want to gift you and I want you to live in harmony with one another, in harmony with Gentiles and Jews, harmony with black and white, harmony with God and man, grace and peace. That's pretty sweet. It's not, now, here's the question you're blessed, but do you believe it? You're not cursed. You're a believer. You're in Christ. You're living under a cloud of blessing. Do you believe it? Will you act that way? Will you lean into it? Will you study about it? Will you hungrily order from the menu? Went out with a girl one time. Her name was Mindy. I have happy thoughts about Mindy. You recognize when I'm being sarcastic? I had very little Monday, and Mindy, I shouldn't say her name publicly. That's kind of mean. Forget I just said that. You know, some girl um, took her out, and, and I saw her open a menu and then run her hand down where the, where the cost of stuff was and stopped at the most expensive thing and ordered it. I literally didn't have money to pay for it. I look at my brother-in-law, kind of like giving the secret signal, like, you got any extra money with you? Because Minnie decided she needed filet mignon tonight. I don't know why, you know. I'm like, what in the world? 
that was not a good reference. But what God says is, you know, there are the unsearchable riches of Christ. You're not going to impoverish me. Here's the menu. Can I tell you a better story? I'll tell you this real quick. Coming home from camp one day, my grandpa was driving. It was always great to be with my grandpa. I wasn't with him that often. He was a common man and worked in a factory as a pastor. And he didn't have tons of money, but he had Chucky e. Zor. My buddy from camp Chuck Zor was with me and me, and we stopped at Burger Chef. And we always ordered the works bar because it was like 59 cents for a burger. And we were always really careful. And my dad would say, if you go out with somebody else, never order something big. Always order the smallest thing on the menu. Always thank him. So I ordered the works bar. Chucky e. Zor had not been trained like I was. And so he says, I think I'll take the big chef. And my grandpa goes, okay. And I'm like, like, what? And my grandpa reading my mind goes, Kenny, you want a big chef? And I'm like, can I? And he goes, sure. So I had a big chef. It was amazing. You know, I've never had, like, wow, have lettuce on it and everything. And uh, that they put on for me. I remember my grandpa, like, going, and, and so I remember that. So now we have 20 grandkids, and I got a thing. You know, we're not around them all that often, or it would probably cost me too much money, but it's like, if you're with me, you can tap me for whatever you want. Whatever you want that I can pay for, you can have. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, that's not right. I know, but it's just the way it is. If I take my grandkids somewhere, I'm like, what do you want? Can I get you something more? They're here the other night. They came down and we went over to Dairy Queen and they said, all they want was this. I'm like, well, can I get you some chicken fingers as well? Because like, I'm a good grandpa, right? Can you imagine the unsearchable riches of Christ? He inspired Paul to write a letter to say, this is a menu you can order from. And you will never exhaust my riches because all I want to do is pour grace, peace, and blessing into your life. That should make you want to read Ephesians. That should make you want to master Ephesians. That should make you want to not miss a single sermon. You just have to go back and look at them online. Who's Paul? He's a violent, blasphemous, zealous, violent man turned an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who are the Ephesians? They're pagans who are living in the, in the shadow of the, the temple of Diana, and he turned them into a movement of faithful saints of God. Who is the Lord Jesus Christ? He is the master, the savior, the anointed Messiah. And what is grace and peace? It's the plan that Jesus brings to the blessed, God's promise of good to those who are in Christ. John Stott, who now with the Lord, is a bird watcher, and he was a famous pastor. John Stott once told a remarkable story about a man who became the president of uh, Princeton Theological Seminary. Alistair Begg picked up the same story. One remarkable testimony, Alistair Begg said it this way, one remarkable testimony to the impact of the book of Ephesians on the life of that one comes from John McKay, who was a Scot. Alistair Begg's a Scot, he had to say that. He's the principal of Princeton Theological Seminary. And he records how as a 14-year-old boy, Ephesians grabbed a hold of him. It wasn't in a church service. It was actually reading Ephesians while he was out walking in the Scottish hills. He said, I experienced the boyish rapture of the Highland Hills and as a result made a passionate commitment to Jesus Christ there among the rocks in the starlight. And Begg said it this way. What a wonderful picture there. A 14-year-old boy reading the Bible saying, you know, I get it the Lord Jesus Christ. I will serve you with my life and make you my master. I saw a whole new world. McKay later on 
at the president of the seminary, delivered a series of lectures on Ephesians, and he said, everything was new. I had a new outlook, a new experience, new attitudes. I love God. Jesus Christ became the center of everything. I had been quickened. I was really alive. And later on, he said, to this book, I owe my very spiritual life. And so he said, it's the distilled essence of the Christian religion. He said, it's theology that sings. He said, it's doctrine set to music. It captured the heart of this boy, and it became his life song. May it become your life song, too. Stand for blessing.